Well, I want to open with a question, not a great surprise to you, I trust, but I wonder this morning, what do you want out of life? What do you want out of life? Is it the corner office with the impressive title and all the lucrative stock options? Or maybe you want power, you want the ability to make decisions, to direct the future, to control destinies, to to take instruction from no one. Or maybe it's fame. Maybe you desire to have your name serve as a kind of VIP pass into any restaurant, right? Any sold out show where you can be assured that because of whom you are, you are always at the front of the line and that when people mention your name, other faces just brighten. Or maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe that's what you desire this morning. Or maybe one who treats you well. Or maybe a spouse, someone to do life with, or kids. Everyone wants something out of life. We all want something out of life. We want something that makes us feel, what, happy, important, and fulfilled. But the question I now want you to ask is, what are you willing to do to get it? What are you willing to do to get that thing this morning that you would love? How far are you willing to go? Would you cheat on an exam? Would you lie on a resume? Would you maybe steal another's idea at work? Would you maybe flex or bend your moral principles a bit in order to become popular, right? Join the in crowd. Maybe you're willing to give your body to another in the hope that it will lead to more commitment and security from them. Or maybe you're considering leaving your spouse because, hey, you know what? Being happy is more important than being faithful, and God will understand. God wants me to be happy. You know, friends, we're in the throes of a political primary season, and I confess, I pray it improves because that debate on Wednesday night looked a little bit like an episode of Jerry Springer. But that's a whole different story. Be that as it may, just one thing to note about these interesting primary seasons Trump was for LGBTQ plus rights before he had to be against them in order to secure the 2016 Republican nomination. And Biden was opposed to abortion consistently, outspokenly for decades until he had to be for it to receive the 2020 Democratic nomination. Right right there, just two examples of how moral principles are often sacrificed and the name of ambition and getting what we want. Lance Armstrong, what? Willing to dope. And not just dope, but lie about it. Not just lie about it, but literally crush and ruin the careers and reputations of anyone who would question and challenge him. You know, the wonder kid of the New York Times, columnist Jason Blair, was willing to blazonly plagiarize others' words and literally fabricate stories out of thin air. And it seems... Putin this week was willing to assassinate his former chef and trusted friend and most loved, honestly, military commander and confidant in order to secure his throne and get rid of an upstart and a rival. We all want something out of life. The question is, what are we willing to do to get it? And that's the question I'd love for you to have on your minds as we enter into a new series this morning in the book of 2 Samuel. 
the book of 2 Samuel. This is a series that's going to take us, Lord willing, all the way till Christmas. So let me encourage you to turn there now to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide those red Bibles in the seat back before you. And you can find it on page 254, page 254. Now, back in 2020, we actually finished 1 Samuel. And that may be hard to remember because this was actually pre-COVID. We actually finished it kind of right at the, the beginning of COVID. But to refresh your memory, 1 Samuel really records the, the story of how the young nation of, of, Egypt, of Israel, rather, young nation of Israel that had been freed from Egyptian bondage, how they're transformed from this just sleepy tribal community into a formidable monarchy. That's the story of 1 Samuel. And her first king is Saul. And Saul, if you remember, he certainly looks the part, right? He's the guy with the broad shoulders, the chiseled chin, the one that would be on the cover of every military recruiting magazine, right? He looks the part. The problem is Saul doesn't play the part, which is why what? God has to raise up someone after his own heart and the young shepherd boy, David. Only Saul, we come to find, is not exactly eager to now relinquish this rule. So in the final 15 chapters of 1 Samuel, we've watched Saul as he desperately clings to power. He's racked by fear, he's driven by ambition, and he abandons God to go his own way. Right? Trusting in his own power, trusting in his own wealth, and his own ruthless ambition, Saul charts his own path. Right? He follows his own rules, and he does that all without God. Where does such a life ultimately lead? It leads to death. That's how 1 Samuel closes, chapter 31. It closes with the death of King Saul. And so as the sun sets and as the landscape turns to black, we close 1 Samuel with the headless body of Saul and his lifeless sons who have been deserted by all we close with a picture of their bodies impaled upon a wall. And in the distant background, all we can hear are the joyful shouts of the Philistines right, and the howling of jackals. It's a brutal way to close a book. And I left us hanging for three years, I'm sorry, because it's, it's actually not the end of the story. It's actually not the end of the story. We know First and Second Samuel, but originally it was just one story, one book. There was no break. It wasn't until about 800 years later when they were translating the Hebrew into the Greek that they actually broke it up into two separate books, probably because that one scroll was a little burdensome, cumbersome, long, hard to work with. But now it's time to finish the story of Samuel, right? That's what we get to do this fall. And just to give you a quick preview, Second Samuel really documents the the rise of David, his rise to the throne, and then his calamitous fall and civil war before his glorious return, the return of the king. And frankly, friends, this book could read like just many of those salacious HBO miniseries that you might find. I mean, it is full of blood and betrayal. It's full of murder and intrigue and sex. If you were to put this on the big screen, 2 Samuel would definitely get an R rating. Maybe, maybe it's rivaled by judges, right? but that would be it. It's honest about life. 
doesn't sugarcoat it, doesn't hide from it, and it confronts us really with a colorful cast of characters. And it confronts us with them, and we see in them the lengths they are willing to go to get what they want. So with that, follow along as I read for us 2 Samuel chapter 1. And yes, friends, the whole chapter, it's only one chapter, all right? Here we go. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind me, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of all his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, and he said to him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm a sojourner, the son of a sojourner, in fact, an Amalekite. Well, David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, that's where Saul had died, let there be no dew or rain upon you, no fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat, of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. 
Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Well, friends, here we're confronted with death and more death and a great lament over death. And as is often the case in 2 Samuel, you know, it can be hard to tell sometimes who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. So when Amalekite comes and lays prostrate before David, and he comes bearing news, and he comes bearing gifts, and instead of being rewarded, David does what? Well, he executes him in cold blood. And we have in the back of our minds, and wait, David's a man after God's own heart. Well, friends, welcome to 2 Samuel. Because when we step back, I think, and look at this chapter as a whole, I believe we're given really two portraits. Two portraits that represent two different paths and the lengths that we're willing to go to get what we want. So portrait one, right, that's the picture of what it looks like to trust in our plans. To trust in our plans. Whereas portrait true two, the second picture, is a picture of what it looks like to not trust in our plans, but rather to trust in God's providence. To trust in God's providence. And friends, those uh, right there is going to serve as our two points. So that first point, first portrait, trusting in our plans. Second point in portrait, trusting in God's providence. All right, so first, right, Trusting in our plans, trusting in our plans. And this really brings us right back to Saul. Because chapter 1, verse 1 opens with the news that Israel's king, Saul, is what? Well, he's dead. And friends, when the fortunes of nations turn on the fortunes of their king and on their house, this is horrific news. This is like a punch in the gut right as we open the book. Now, we have to recognize this isn't news for the reader. Right, Saul's death is actually told in all of its gruesome detail back in chapter 31. But 2 Samuel 1 really picks up back where 1 Samuel 30 left off. Right, there David had just returned to Ziklag. He had gone out. The Amalekites had stolen the wives and children of all of his band and many of those down in Judah. And he went and fought against the Amalekites and rescued all of those Children and women who have been sold as slaves and rescues them and he brings them back. Right, That's how 1 Samuel 30 ends. And while David is having that fight with the Amalekites, Saul, further north, is having the fight with the Philistines. So when David returns to Ziklag, he has no news of what's transpired a good 80 miles north. He does not know what's happened. And that word actually striking down the Amalekites, that word right there in verse 1, It's actually the same word used back in 1 Samuel 15. It's the word used to describe what Saul should have done. What he was supposed to do back in 1 Samuel 15. Strike down the Amalekites. But if you remember the story, what did Saul do? Well, Saul instead took Agag the king and he took 
uh, much as plunder. Remember, that's when Samuel shows up and he's like, why didn't you obey the Lord? And Saul's like, I obeyed the Lord. And Samuel's like, then what's this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? No, you didn't. It's all around you. You didn't obey the Lord. And because he did not strike down the Amalekites as he was commanded to do, what did God do? God stripped him of the kingship. It was right there in that decision that cost Saul his kingdom. Because Saul was more concerned with pleasing people and earning favor than he was with pleasing God. So it's no accident, right as we open up, that David is in fact doing what Saul has refused to do, strike down the Amalekites. He's behaving like the king that Saul was meant to be by striking them down. He is in fact, after all, we're seeing the man after God's own heart. And notice, according to the young man's report, what's the last image we have of Saul in the book of Samuel? Look down to verse 6. Look down with me to verse 6. We read by chance, this is what the man says, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. You remember Saul and his infamous spear? It was all over 1 Samuel. It was like sort of the badge of his office, and it was always with him. Saul and his spear, inseparable in life, inseparable in death. It was that spear that he sought to impale David twice. He even sought to impale his own son Jonathan for aligning with David at one point. And that picture of Saul with his spear, I think that's really a parable. It's a parable, and it's no accident that we're given this picture, right? Saul leaning on his spear because it's a parable of Saul's own propensity to rely on human effort as opposed to divine resources. It's a picture of his own propensity to rely and to trust in human effort and not on divine resources. Even in the final moments of his life, there Saul is still looking to his own plan, still looking to his own resources, his own ingenuity, his own strength, and yet it cannot deliver him. Can't do it. It's a tragic picture, and yet... It's also tragically full of irony. For Saul, as we just noted, he lost his kingship all the way back in 1 Samuel 15 because what? He refused to strike down the Amalekites. And now one of these Amalekites would return that he didn't strike down and strike him down. There's a kind of poetic justice that in the last moments of his life, Saul is faced, we're told, with an Amalekite. That's the last face he sees. The very ones he is ordered to destroy are the one who destroy him. Friends, there are no coincidences with the sovereign God. None of this is unfolding accidentally. Saul had sought to outrun his sins. The kingdom he lost by divine right. He pursued and he plotted and he schemed with murderous vengeance. And what did it gain him? An ignominious death. That's what it gained him. Friends, God is sovereign. We can't run from our own sins any more than Saul could run from his. It's a lesson Saul should have learned from Eli all the way back in 1 Samuel 4. You know, Actually, if you were to go back and read 1 Samuel 4, there are quite a few parallels between that chapter and this opening chapter of 2 Samuel 1. Because if you remember, it was back in 1 Samuel 4 where they take the Arctic out and they treat it like a rabbit's foot and they go to fight the Philistines. 
And what happens? A Benjamite comes back. And Eli's waiting anxiously for days, much like David, waiting for news of the report. And a Benjamite comes, and when he comes, how is he described? His clothes are torn. There's dirt on his head, just like we find in 2 Samuel 1. And he asks the same question Eli does of the messenger that David asks here. How did it go? And like the young messenger here, he reported the news that Israel had fled. Remember that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were dead. And upon that right, Eli fell back, backwards, fell over, and he died. It's just in that story, we had the demise of a priestly house. So here we have the demise of a royal house in Saul. You see, our sins come for us. We saw it with Eli. We sing it with Saul. They catch up with us. And our sins will be the end of us, just as they were for Saul and Eli. You know, I'm going to bet in a room this size that there are some here listening to me right now who are holding on to a vain and rather absurd notion that you can live your life as you please and that God's all-seeing gaze somehow will just miss you, be unconcerned with you. Friend, look again at Saul. Consider him. Nothing escapes God's notice. There is nothing concealed, we read, that will not be disclosed. Nothing that is hidden that will one day not be made known. Oh friend, abandon that vain notion that somehow your end will be any different than Saul's or Eli's. And repent before it's too late. Right? That's what Saul refused to do time and time again. Refuse to repent. It is not too late for you. Repent. But it's not just Saul. We see the same tendency to trust in our own ingenuity, trust in our own cunning with this young messenger right, that we read of in chapter 1. Now, at first glance, at least when I read this as a new Christian, I read this, I'm like, oh my word, this guy gets a raw deal. What's up with the story? Right? We have that expression, don't shoot the messenger. It's like David never got the memo. And in a fit of rage over killing the killing of Saul and Jonathan, it's as if he just vents his anger upon the man. You know, but I think if we look closer, there are clues that would suggest that there's more going on here than merely a benevolent messenger finding himself on the short end of David's fuse. There's more going on. You know, because the account of Saul's death in 2 Samuel 1, it differs from the account of his death in 1 Samuel 31. Right there in 1 Samuel 31, what? He commits suicide. And, he, and, he's, and yet in here in 2 Samuel 1, he doesn't commit suicide. He's rather killed by an Amalekite. And in 1 Samuel 31, he's wounded by archers. But here he's being chased by chariots and horsemen. It feels like a different scene. And while that could all be the inevitable confusion, the kind of fog of war that sets in in times of chaos, I think the narrator, narrator drops little hints that something, again, in the story is amiss. So notice first, the messenger is regularly referred to as what? As the young man who told him. That expression, the young man who told him, we actually find it three different times. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 13. 
It keeps being repeated as if the narrator's reminding us this is the man's report, not necessarily the facts. And we have to ask ourselves, why would this man travel 80 miles, dangerous miles, to get all the way to David down in Ziklag? And what was the man, in fact, doing on Mount Gilboa anyway? When David asks this man for some kind of proof of the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, he asks for it in verse 5. And again, in verse 6, he responds and he says, By chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Well, just slow down for a minute. By chance? How exactly does one stumble onto a battlefield with two massive armies just by chance? That's a little hard to believe. And notice he doesn't come outright and tell David who he is, that he's an Amalekite, at least not at first. The narrator withholds that crucial bit of information all the way down to verse 8, just like the man withheld it from David. And then notice how he attempts to portray Saul's death as a kind of mercy killing in verse 10. He He says, so I stood beside him, referring to Saul, and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. So an altruistic Amalekite? Is that the conclusion we're supposed to draw? Right, the very first one in scripture right here. Remember, these are the people when Israel was being delivered from Egypt, they were the ones that ruthlessly went after the weak and the strays in the back of the line. Those were the Amalekites. It's why God was intent on seeing that they be wiped out. And so to present this as sort of an altruistic act, as a kind of, as if hastening his death was an act of kindness, a kind of death with dignity, as if such a thing ever existed. And then notice what he does. He presents David in verse 10 with what? With the crown that was on Saul's head, the armlet that was on his arm. And what does he say? He says, I have brought them to my Lord. When did David become his Lord? It seems to me like this man is desperately seeking to ingratiate himself with David. He seems to be cozying up, trying to score some political points, gain some favor. And we learn as we keep reading 2 Samuel 4 verse 10 that when the man presented the news to David, he presented it as if David would be pleased to hear it. He's assuming Saul's death would have been good news to David. No, I think it's more likely this Amalekite concocted at least part of the story. It's tough to know. Perhaps he was a, a looter, some kind of scavenger, just with a gift of spinning tails. And so he finds the dead Saul. Right, newly deceased there on the battlefields at Mount Geboa. And he finds him with his crown and with his armlet. And in that moment, he recognizes an opportunity. Right, I've been a Malachite all my life living in Israel. I've been kept down. I haven't had my chance. I haven't got what's coming to me. And now I see it. I can take this crown. I can take this armlet. I can go to David. And if I give him those badges of rank, maybe I will be raised in rank. I think that's perhaps some of the thought going on in the man's head. So notice the implicit reasoning. The man's really thinking, if I give David what he wants, David will, of course, give me what I want. 
It's sort of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I mean, that's how politics works, right? And friend, right there, I think we have a picture, another picture of, of how we all tend to relate to God. Whether or not we admit it, whether or not we even see it in ourselves, we operate with God with a kind of quid pro quo. The idea that we assume we know what God wants, right? We assume God wants us to be good. He wants us to be religious. He wants us to, to maybe go to church. And we assume that if we give God what he wants, then of course he'll give back to us what we want. That's the assumption so many of us have. It's the assumption this Amalekite seems to have had. We expect if we give him what he wants, then he'll return the favor. That could be spouse, success, money, fame, power, right, whatever. We deserve it, we actually think, because, of course, we've done all these things for him. But, friend, if that's you, just know that God is deeply offended by the notion that he can be bought off, that he can be bartered with. That by our behavior, somehow we can make God our debtor. That's offensive to him. Now maybe you've approached God your whole life thinking, right? You can buy him off just with a bit of religion. But friend, where does that lead this Amalekite? Nowhere good. Look what happens to this Amalekite. David... In it, uh, we come to find out he doesn't, in fact, rejoice. He doesn't return the man favor. Rather, he weeps bitterly in verses 11 and 12. And then he says to the man in verse 13, we get back to that conversation, and he says, where do you come from? And I know it looks in English like the same question back in verse 3, but the Hebrew is actually different. In verse 3, he's asking when the man comes, right, torn and the rest, he's, he's asking, where were you? In verse 13, He's asking a different question. He's asking, he's asking, who exactly are you? Right? The man says he's the son of a sojourner, which means he's a resident alien living in Israel. And though they don't enjoy all the privileges of being Israelites, they were entitled to justice under the law, and they were also subject to the law's penalties. Which is why David immediately responds in verse 14. How is it? that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Because to oppose the Lord's anointed is to oppose the Lord himself. David understood this, right? We're given at least two explicit examples back in 1 Samuel where he had every opportunity to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, against Saul. And we might understand, given the way Saul had treated him, but what does he do? He spares his life, David does. 1 Samuel 24, 6, David says, The Lord forbid that I should do. That's when he's in the cave at Adullam, right? And he finds Saul and he tears off a piece of his robe. And he's conscious and grief-stricken over it. What does he say? The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him because he is the Lord's anointed. Or later when they sneak down into camp and, and steal that infamous spear. You remember what David says. He says, do not destroy him, referring to Saul. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? 
Saul's own armor bearer understood this back in 1 Samuel 31. When Saul commands him to kill him before the Philistines capture him, we read in 1 Samuel 31 that his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Everyone in Israel understood this. The king ruled in God's stead. So to do violence against the king is to do violence against God. Now, whether David had doubts about the man's story, it's hard to know. But he does take him, it seems, at his word. And with those words the man uttered back in verse 10, I stood beside him and killed him. Recognize the man has just incriminated himself. He's just confessed to a capital crime, the murder of the Lord's anointed. He has not just done violence against Saul. The man has, in fact, done violence against God, which is why David summarily has him executed in verse 16, saying, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And recognize with that, it became clear to all, all who were there, that David neither plotted nor took pleasure in this Amalekite's act. So the grave miscalculation this Amalekite made, the grave miscalculation we tend to make, is that there are times, as we get impatient, we make the miscalculation, there are times that we can just give God's promises a little shove, a little nudge, just help further them along, just a bit, just, just a little push. And we make that assumption that we can push God's promises along on our time, in our manner. Right? The Amalekite, what he, he saw an opportunity to hasten the kingdom of David, to rise in rank, assuming, of course, he would receive some reward. But instead of being paid for his news, right, he's called to pay with his life. A striking example, isn't it, of Psalm 101, verse 7. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. But you know, friend, as easy as it is to point the finger at this conniving Amalekite, the searching question, I think, is whether or not we too, whether or not we as well have been deluded into thinking that we can somehow gain advantage through poor, bad, immoral behavior. Maybe a lie, maybe it's a deception, maybe it's a broken promise, maybe it's a betrayal. Do you know that instinct in your own heart to give God's promises just a bit of a shove? You know, you want to be married, but you're tired of waiting on God, so you begin to date that non-Christian because, well, God, you had your chance, it hasn't come, I'm taking things in my own hands. Or maybe it's a couple Grieving because they've not been able to have children, and so they engage in fertility practices that destroy embryos. Reasoning again, hey, listen, God, children are a good thing. You haven't given them to us, so we are going to seek to give them to ourselves. Or you've, at school or work, you've sought to play by the rules, to obey the rules. But you're watching others, and what are they doing? They're cutting corners, they're cheating and stealing, and they're getting ahead, and you're like, I'm tired of being left behind. It's my turn now. If that's you, my friend, again, look at Saul and look at this Amalekite. Sin never pays. You know, they say sometimes crime pays. It doesn't pay. 
It never pays. It makes promises, but it only steals and kills and destroys. All of those who trust not in the Lord and not in their carefully concocted plans, it all leads to the same place. It all leads to death. Which brings us to David, and that's really our second portrait, a portrait of one who is not like these other two figures, not trusting in his own plans, but David instead, second portrait, one who's trusting in God's providence. Secondly, trusting in God's providence. For here's the striking figure, uh, feature rather, of 2 Samuel 1. David, if you remember, was promised the kingship all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. And of course, what's happened? Well, years have passed. And not only is David not the king, but he's a fugitive on the run. He's got a bounty on his head. He has been forced to flee Israel. Saul has taken his wife taken his best friend Jonathan. He's taken everything from David. And now here's an Amalekite who's giving him the perfect opportunity to finally take what we know is rightfully his. It's the perfect opportunity. The Amalekite just lays it in his lap. His due, right? But David doesn't do it, does he? He doesn't take it. So notice the kingdom and all of its signs, they were coming to David. The man, right, paying him homage in verse 2, a picture of that. Now this crown and armlet laid at his feet in verse 10. All these signs were coming to him, but David himself was not seeking them. He was not even trying to speed them along. He would not seize the throne by force. He would not engage in political subterfuge. God would make him king or he would never be king. Either way, David refused to make himself king. He refused to give God's plans just that gentle shove. He entrusted himself to God, to God's timing. He trusted in God's providence, which given all the injustices and all the hardships, right? who would blame David for finally taking what is rightfully his? Right? We feel for him. But he refuses to do that, and instead he waits upon God, and he rests in God's providence. Friend, that's why we confess that doctrine, that statement of providence earlier in the service. I hope you didn't miss it. It's why we're singing this morning, whate'er my God ordains is right. Are you waiting on God? David was willing to wait on him. Are you willing this morning to wait on God on that thing you desperately want? Are you willing to wait months, maybe even years? Are you willing to wait upon the Lord even when everything in life, like with David, is crumbling about you? Especially when it's in your power just to twist the rules a bit? To make it happen, will you wait upon God? It was the posture of David's life, the patient waiting. Because friends, that is just the posture of the Christian life. The Christian life is the waiting life. It's how we walk through this life as we wait in expectation of the hope before us. But friend, resting in God's providence, that also, don't take that to mean some stoic resignation to some cosmic fate, right? Waiting is hard in a fallen world, isn't it? 
And part of how we wait faithfully is by crying out gutterly to God. Not burying our fears and griefs, but unloading them at God's feet. So notice in verses 1 to 16, we actually have a structure we see often in Hebrew. Notice there's initially the bookends, verse 1 and verse 16. And what are those bookends? The death of an Amalekite or Amalekites in verse 1. And then the next step in, what do we have? We've got the conversation with the Amalekite. The first one in 3 to 10 and the second one, I think, in 13 and 14. And then what's right in the middle? It's David's grief, his expression of grief in verses 11 and 12. That's at the center of the story. We read, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David in his pain pens one of the most powerful and moving expressions of mourning that we find presented in all the Bible. Right? Verses 17 all the way through 27. And at times the Hebrew is artfully contorted in such a way as to kind of mirror the wrenching of David's own soul. He's sort of gasping and heaving in grief. And he doesn't just write, notice, David doesn't just write for his sake, right? This isn't some personal form of therapy that we're just kind of listening in on. Well, no, he writes for our sakes because he wants us to be instructed in what grief and lament looks like in the Christian life. For notice verse 18, he wants this to be this, this lament he's about to give, he wants it to be taught to the people of Judah, recorded in the book of Jashar, which is simply a collection of ancient Hebrew poetry and songs that's no longer in existence. Sadly, we don't know it. But yet, yet we have this particular song recorded for us, preserved for us. God's done that. And by framing this chapter or the beginning of the chapter 1 to 16 by framing it in this particular way with verses 11 and 12 at the center and then closing with the lament the narrator is helping turn our expression toward a proper biblical expression of grief for there will be times in life right where everyone all of us we have to wait we have to wait upon God even a kingdom Right here, we'll have to wait. But there are times where, frankly, grief cannot wait. Grief can't wait. Which challenges us because some of us, at this point, we think of those verses like, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Or, you know, James, count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds. And so a lament like this might not only feel a little strange to our ears, but it might even sound unchristian. You know, sort of the modern, if you'll pardon the expression, some of the happy, clappy, sort of modern Christian music that we often hear, right? If that's any indication, we don't have this gear of lament as the Bible does. But friend, what do you do when your life is no longer a celebration? What do you do when you don't wake up and just want to skip and sing throughout your day? Are you to conclude somewhere along the way you've missed the Christian life? You've lost out on something? You know, as a consequence, some will conclude that Christianity is, is simply blind to the pain of this world. It has no answer, no emotional gear to cope 
with the hardships of life. And so they torn, uh, they rather turn, they turn to the sort of mournful and angry ballads like what? Rich men north of Richmond, that's where they go. Others are left just to try and fake their way through pain. Come to church, right? Put on a smile, pretend on Sunday morning that all is well, even when all around you, everything's melting down. You know, sometimes in the church, we're even impatient with grief. Even in the church, we can be impatient with grief. Sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we can be tempted to think, you know, if they were really resting in God, they'd be better by now. I I mean, I know they lost their dad, but it's been a year. I know they lost their spouse. It was years ago, though. Right? Isn't it time for them just to get on with life? We don't say such things usually out loud, but I'm going to guess many of you have thought them. I know I sadly have. And yet lament recognizes that grief is deep and grief is unrelenting. It grips you with its painful claws and it will not let you go. The reality is the deeper we love, the deeper we will grieve. It's inescapable. Which means lamenting like this That's not denying or rejecting God's providence. Lamenting like this is submitting to that providence. It's receiving it. A lament is simply a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's a kind of pathway to praise when life is just stealing from you. Because the Bible does not call you just to wade stoically through life. Right Above the reach of pain and suffering. That's not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible rather gives us categories. And the Bible gives us language by which to speak and pray our tears to God. And that's what a lament is. It's the Bible's, you know, it's, it's minor key. And it is all over Israel's hymn book. Even if it's not ours, it is Israel's. And note how the lament opens, verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places. How the mighty have fallen, tell it not in Gash, Gath, rather, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. So Gath and Ashkelon are just Philistine cities. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. David knows he can't censor the Philistine presses, right? He's 80 miles south. He can do nothing about that. He knows the opening line of all that goes out that next day is what? The king is dead. He knows that. And he knows that news will be broadcast in Gath. He knows that news will be on every big screen TV and every bar of Ashkelon, right? He knows it. And that's what pains him so. That's what grieves him so. Because with cheers and chants, he knows they're singing in Philistia, not all glory be to Christ, right? To God's anointed, to God's Messiah, to God's King. They're singing all glory be to Dagon. That's what they're singing. And the thought of that pains him. But just notice, even in David's greatest pain, he doesn't ever take his eyes off of God's glory. Because God has tied his glory to a people. And that people has just been routed on the battlefield. And back in Philistia, Yahweh is nothing more now than a notch on Dagon's belt. That's all he is. And so though the lament, interestingly, if you read it and thought about it, the lament never directly mentions God, not once. It is nonetheless offered to him, and it has God constantly in view. God's name, 
God's fame, that is David's overriding concern, right? God's glory, not his own. David lives for an audience of one. Truth be told, you and I, we also live for an audience of one. Everyone lives for an audience of one. It's yourself or it's God. One or the other. And I wonder which it is in your life. Which it is in your life. But it's not just a theological lament. It's a deeply personal lament. So Saul, Jonathan, what, they're named four different times. And isn't it remarkable that David can eulogize Saul after all Saul has done to him? But you know, I hope, okay, this sentence is the way I craft it, doesn't matter. I hope that if in the tragic case that our president were assassinated, I didn't want to say I hope our president's assassinated. I hope in the tragic case that if our president was assassinated, I pray it wouldn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. I pray you would feel grief and shock and horror, right? Because we honor the position even when we struggle perhaps to honor the man. And we know every ruler, Romans 13, has been what given to us by God. And that included, David understood, that included men like Saul. Paul writing knew that would include men like Nero. And whatever leaders God gives us as well. Both Saul and Jonathan are commended. Commended for their courage in battle, notice verse 22. The bow of Jonathan turned not back, which is a rather literal way of saying the bow of Jonathan never retreated. Just think of a kind of Legolas in Lord of the Rings, right? And you got, you got an image for Jonathan. Or the sword of Saul returned not empty, which is another way of saying it returned not clean, but always, just going back to Lord of the Rings, like Boromir, right? Stained with the blood of the slain on the battlefield, and also in the streets, in the public square. What do we read? Verse 23, they were beloved and lovely. And yet of the two, Saul and Jonathan, notice Jonathan receives pride of place. We feel it in those closing lines of lament, verse 26. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, I highlight this verse not only because I think it speaks to the profound depth of grief and loss of, of, one, of one who's lost a beloved friend, but because of some have more recently tried to point to this verse to suggest that David and Jonathan had a sexual relationship together. But friends, that assumption that David and Jonathan, because of this, had a sexual relationship together, I think that assumption says a whole lot more about our hyper-sexualized culture than it does about David and Jonathan. It says, in fact, a whole lot more about us, I think, that we'd even make that assumption that it says anything about David and Jonathan. You know, Abraham Lincoln was known as he traveled around as a lawyer. He was known to regularly sleep with his male assistants. They slept in the same bed. It was common. Are they all gay? I don't think so. For the compassion between, or the comparison, I should say, the comparison between Jonathan's love and a wife's love, that point of comparison is not one of sexuality, it's one of fidelity. Fidelity. Jonathan, who was he? The heir to Saul's throne. And yet he sacrificed all of that for his friend and allegiance to David. 
even though that would cost him his father Saul, it would cost him the crown, it would even lead to his very own life. Jonathan remained faithful to the end. Jonathan, you see, had done for David what none of David's wives could ever do for him. And that's what he's expressing about his love for Jonathan and how extraordinary it was. Because male friendships, I hope we're seeing at some point in this evangelical world, I hope we're seeing that male friendships are, are much more. And they go beyond just sort of like dudes grunting over like some pile of chicken wings, you know, talking football, watching UFC, whatever we might think of. Maybe that's all you think it's like for men to have relationships. And the, the sad reality is sometimes that's all the conversation we have, okay? But nonetheless... Biblical men, we're seeing here, what do they do? They risk their necks for one another. They weep with one another. They stick by one another. And they do so all the way to the end. I wonder, men of UBC, if any of you have relationships like this. You say you have a friend, like David had a friend in Jonathan. For to love another man as your own soul which is what Jonathan says about David back in 1 Samuel 18, to love another man as your own soul. That's not homosexual love. That is the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ and a willingness to lay down one's life for his brother. And we all need relationships like this. We all do, where friends will stick by us in our grief and they will sit patiently and quietly with us in our pain. I don't want to draw too much of a point from this, but just notice no one is pointing to David and saying, hey, do you not remember Jeremiah 29, 11? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, other than the fact that's taken woefully out of context. It's all about destruction. Nonetheless, no one's reciting that. No one's saying, hey, David, you just need a little Romans 8, 28 this morning. No, they're with him, and he's sitting in his grief. And notice the lament closes how it opens. How the mighty have fallen. It's the theme sentence, really, that ties the whole lament together. We read of it three times. It's in the opening, it's in the close, it's there in the middle. How the mighty have fallen, friend, that's just a great summary of the book of Samuel. Is it not? So we had what? The rise and the fall of Eli's house. And then you have the rise of Saul's house. And then you have the fall of Saul's house. Each rising and each falling. And it leads to David. And we're going to see even in David a rise and a fall. Because even David was meant to point to someone greater. Friends, there's one who fell and yet rose. Is there not? The man, Jesus Christ. And I think we've seen glimpses of Christ throughout 2 Samuel 1. Little details pointing us to someone and something greater. We're told in verse 1 that what? David remained in Ziklag two days. I don't want to over-argue over it, but what do we have here? We've got two days of tragedy. We've got two days of darkness. Two days of uncertainty where there is no king in Israel. And then notice it was on the third day that a man bows and pays homage to David as the true king. Did not our Lord Jesus lay two days in the darkness of the grave? Were they not days of fear and uncertainty, only to have him rise on that third day, crowned victoriously as king? 
And notice the man's what? He's a Gentile. And how does the man come to David? He comes what? He comes bearing gifts befitting a king. Mind you, have anyone else? Maybe the Magi in Matthew 1 and 2? Really, sorry, Matthew 2. And like David, wasn't Jesus promised a kingdom without a cross? That's what the Amalekite was holding forth. Was not Jesus offered the same thing when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan? He said, you can have all of this. Everything can be yours. You can have the crown without the cross. Just follow me. And Jesus refused to do it. And instead of our blood being on our heads, this true Messiah took our blood. And he really shed his blood for us. This Messiah died in our place, trusting and waiting that God would vindicate him. Right? We read that in Acts chapter 4, that the day would come when Every Jewish and Roman ruler, indeed all the Gentiles, all the Israelites, which means everyone in the entire world conspired against, what did we read? Against the Lord's anointed and against your holy servant Jesus to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God was about something in that, wasn't he? Jesus is the supreme example of the one who did not trust in his own plans, but rather entrusted himself to divine providence. One who had every right to judge us in our sins, and yet this one bore that judgment for us. The question is, is this Jesus your king? Is he your king? Because friends, all of us want something out of life. The question is, how far are we willing to go to get it? Will we grab the wheel of life, so to speak? Will we trust in our might, our wisdom, our strength to get what we want? Will we cut a few corners morally here or there in order to do so? Will we do that? Or will we not trust in our plans, but wait on God's providence, wait on his promises? I hope you're seeing there are really only two ways to live. There's life our way on our terms like Saul and like the Amalekite. Or there's life God's way like David, and ultimately God's greater son, David's greater son, Jesus. The question is, which of those two paths, right? Which is it going to be for you? Let's pray.